that 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 is too much. I know. It's unbelievable. What you went through, what you went through is just uh, beyond any any comprehension. It's, not, it's, it's um, a strange thing, you know, because obviously it was so long ago now, and sometimes I almost feel far removed from that little girl that I was. But at the same time. In another respect, I still feel like she's inside me sometimes and I'm still fighting to sort of, you know, find my way in the world. It's, um, it was a really, really tough time. And sadly, 30 years on, I don't think the care system, the state care system in the UK has changed an awful lot. You know, I, um, I keep up with <clears throat> current affairs and the news and um, I watch what's going on in that area of the world. Um, and one of the biggest problems I have, I think, with the state care system is they're obviously they're overflowing, which is very, very sad. Um, so they have to, well, subcontract themselves out to private children's homeowners. Um, now, when I was in a children's home, 30 odd years ago because of an um, I was an overflow also and I ended up in one of these private run children's homes in North Wales and it was called Bryn Allen I changed the name in the book Amelia's story but it's actually called Bryn Allen in North Wales and it was in the press for over 20 the last 20 years because it, a, a paedophile was discovered within this children's home and over 200 children were discovered to have been systematically abused over this period of time. Now I was sent there for my own safety into the hands of this group of people who are all now in prison. Uh, it's all public knowledge, it's, I'm not saying anything I shouldn't, it's all public knowledge, it's, it's, it's you know, on the internet, um, read any newspaper, the Times, the Guardian, type in Bryn Allen and it will all bring up all the information. Um, and um, my only thing, my only saviour was being a girl, I think. I, even though I had my own little mishaps where things nearly happened but they didn't, as you would have known through reading the book, um, a boy had it far worse. And, um, you know, they were taken out of the children's home and they would be taken to the owner's private home he had this lush private home and um he was quite a wealthy guy he owned four or five children's homes so he was paid a fortune i mean for each child even back then he was getting two thousand pound a month now you've got to imagine that was 30 years ago so that's an awful lot of money per child and we didn't see a lot of that money we were fed and we were watered but we were clothed you know we had a clothing allowance which barely stretched a year and i remember you know, I could literally I had one little drawer with all my belongings in it. And, um, you know, you had to, your shoes had to be falling off your feet before they would replace them. And they would be, you know, your classic sort of cheap plimsolls that only cost a couple of quid at the time. But the point is the pockets were lined very, very well. And it was clear what this money was used for. And it was um, this huge paedophile ring and um, it was uncovered in the end. And um, there was an investigation by, um, you know, the government a few years ago um, called the Palaeolex, um, the Palaeolex investigation. And it uncovered <clears throat> 
hundreds and hundreds of children over a 20, 30 year period who were systematically abused. Um, some of these children are dead now, sadly, because they were, you know, they couldn't cope with what had happened to them. And back then, when you were released um, into what I call the real world, when you, be when you become of age, which back then was probably 16, um, you had nowhere to go. You were literally, there's your carrier bag of belongings and goodbye kind of thing. Um, but the one thing that has been a bugbear for the last 30 years for me is that when the state care system, which is better than the private run system, because the state care system is monitored, you know, they keep a, quite a tight rein on what's going on in there and they, they can't afford to have their name drug, dragged through the courts, even though they do, but it's not quite as bad. Um, is Their overflow is huge. So there's a lost society of children and these children... Um, they have to go somewhere. You know, they've been taken from their homes of neglect and abuse and they have to go somewhere. So they find themselves being the, the councils, the government, they subcontract these children to these private children's homes who get paid an, hundreds of thousands of pounds a year to take in these children in these private homes. So they could house anything. Well, back then they would house anything up to 100 children in these re um purposed stately homes which were dark and dull and gray in the middle of nowhere surrounded by lots of land you couldn't go anywhere and it was difficult to escape and I was quite fond of escaping to be honest you know I'd often run away when I was a child and wanting to state my case something's not wrong and it something's not right and it feels wrong and you know it was back those days you know children should be seen and not heard you must go back and you'd be taken back and your social worker you know you have allocated a social they would come and visit you once or twice a year and you're in this private institution run by these predators not just not just sexual they were physical ones as well you know people were physically abused on a daily basis the punishments for running away were awful I had a couple of those awful punishments myself and um but they weren't properly monitored you didn't have regular visits from you know, the, the councils in that area, um, you know, government bodies or anything, it, they were kind of just left to it. And reading on all these years later, even after the investigations, even after the Brinell and the children's homes from hell, um, you know, has all disbanded now and um, all these children who are now adults, um, they... Um, you know, had their day in court and gave evidence and all uh, over nine, ten, nine, ten, eleven main members of staff who were all men were imprisoned, charged and imprisoned with multiple sexual um, charges. John Allen, the owner, he um, was like the main leader of all this. And it involved all sorts of people, MPs, judges, people in top positions and who were involved in this paedophile ring that was broken by the government and it was exposed for all to see. And John Allen, you know, he was given um, a life sentence, I believe. Um, and it was really strange because while I was living there, I was there for four years. I was an overflow child. What I was called, what you call one of the lost children. Um, I came from um, an alcoholic parent who couldn't handle her children, and you know, 
a very abusive family um, environment. So me and my siblings, we were very young at the time, we were, we were removed from my mother and we were all put in care. Um, and the sad thing about what happened to us as a family is we were very, very close, me and my siblings, because I was the older sister. So I used to protect them when we lived at home. And naturally, when we went, got put into the care system, I wanted to wrap my arms around them and keep protecting them because we were in a strange environment and we had no idea, you know, what was going to happen to us and where we were. And I just thought Janie and my two little sisters, um, you know, Janie and Gail, they were like three and five years old um, at the time. And I think for the first time, I may have been about nine. I was much older in my years than I was because I'd been looking after them for, you know, for a long time at home when my mom couldn't get out of bed. And, you know, we'd come home from school and there'd just be alcohol bottles empty all over the place. So it was up to me to take care of the children, hoover the house, feed them, put them to bed and all that kind of thing. So I, I naturally, I continued that role when we were put, all put in the first children's home together. And sadly, this, what I didn't realize was what they had in store for us. And that was to separate all of us. Every, all of us were separated for the rest of our lives. And I'm still not in contact with my sisters today, um, which is terribly sad, um, you know, because they were everything to me at the time they um because Jane and Gail were so young my two younger sisters they were easier to foster or um foster out so they were sent to a foster family in Shrewsbury beautiful place actually Shrewsbury is very very nice and um they were sent there and um I think eventually the foster parents adopted the my two little sisters and that they would have had very little recollection of that time because they were so young, three, um, four, five. Um, so yes, that that's what happened to them. My brother got sent somewhere else and I remained in this one children's home awaiting a decision where they could find a space for me because they were overcrowded. And you end up getting sent to various different institutions until they can find a spot for you where they can just say, right, she can stay there now. And, you know, until such time as she can, you know, go out into the world and live her own life and whatever. So, yeah, it was very, very tough. And you do get moved around a lot and you get sent to lots of different homes. Um, they become busy and they have an intake of younger ones and they move the older ones to various different places, but they're not suitable. So, yeah, it was a very, very difficult time. And um, but some it's very difficult to explain. But when I was a child, my thought process, the way I thought about things, the way I thought about everything, I never really felt like I was a child. I kind of always had that mother hen feeling about me, you know, because of my young, my younger siblings. That's all I thought about was my younger siblings. So to be separated from them when I was knowing I'd never be able to see them again. I wasn't even allowed a phone call on a weekly basis. nothing. They just said, it's best if you just cut all contact. There's no phone calls. And we had no opinion. We had no um, input in the decision because, well, you're only a child. You know, this is a decision for adults. And that is how it worked back then. 
I think that's changed a little bit. I think over the years they try and keep siblings together, um, but maybe I think that's the only thing that's really um, changed, you know, a little bit. Still, you know, they still have to subcontract out the council do two private run children's homes, which aren't as um, they don't have severe checks like the government state run children's homes do. So they're open to abuse. They're open to neglect. And they're all about the money because it's a profitable organisation. They're profitable organisations where state run children's homes aren't. And even today that that still happens is a real bugbear with me. And I really wish it, it was different, but sadly it isn't. And children will always need these places. Children will always need somewhere to go. But they're not always safer. Um, and you don't even know that until you grow up sometimes because you think where you're living and what you're living through is the, is normal. Um, but then, you know, once I'd been sent to Bryn Allen after many children's homes I'd been to, I realised this home was, there was something different about this one. And I felt scared and I felt safe. I mean, I felt scared and I felt unsafe. And, um, you know... I, I would just wrap myself up as much as I could in the evenings. When I went to bed, I would have two or three pajama bottoms on if I, if it was possible, I would put anything on that I could, you know, and wrap myself up. Um, um, and, you know, I know a, a few of us children, we kind of discussed this and we talked about it and we heard rumors and we couldn't understand why some children were take, suddenly taken away for weekends and they'd come back and they'd be totally different. Their attitudes would be different. They're, their demeanour, they'd be quiet, they'd be hunched. And we, I remember as a child thinking, wow, how come he's he's got a motocross bike? How come he's got a TV? And he's suddenly been given his own room and been taken out of the dorm. And we just thought that they were so lucky. Like, you know, why do we have to live with nothing and do all these horrible chores and, you know, be berated all the time and live the way we live but what we didn't realize and I thank God today what I didn't realize is they were living more of a hellish life than we actually were at that time and sadly quite a few people that I know who were in that situation a lot of a lot of people committed suicide within the first five years of leaving the state with within uh, leaving Bryn Allen Hall so it's a very very sad situation and it takes a very I think strong view to survive there's two roads you can take I've always said your beginnings do not have to define your end you know you are people are in charge of you for so long and I felt this as a child I had this mantra and it was one day my destiny will be in the palms of my hands and I will be able to do what I want to make the decisions that I need to make but in, in the meantime, I've got to find an escape, stay invisible as much as possible and decide what, you know, I want to do when I grow up because I'm not going to have any help. I knew that from an early age. The schooling was absolutely awful. It was on the grounds within these institutions in porter cabins. So you didn't have exams and GCSEs and all that kind of thing. None of that. They were part time teachers that came in and taught you when they could. Um, and how they prepared you for the outside world was another interesting point because instead of giving you advice on how your career advice, 
they gave you, they, they invited a man to come in. He was unemployed and he'd been living off unemployment benefit all his life and he was in his 40s and we had this classroom and each classroom, well, porter cabin, he went from porter cabin to porter cabin to each group of children. And I remember sitting there and I was actually sitting back thinking, what's the point of life if this is all they're giving us? And he sat there with this list of how to survive on the state care system. When you leave care, you can apply for unemployment once you're 18, if you're lucky. Um, make sure you've got an address and it's only a little bit of money, but you can do an awful lot with that money. It can go a long way. I've even traveled to Europe, you know, and all sorts of things. And this is how you survive. Well, I was sitting at the back thinking, but that's no life for me. That's not, I've got a long life to live and I'm not going to live my life like that. You know, that's not what I, how I want to live my life. And my saviour was the donated libraries. Um, well, the donated books for the makeup libraries. They're makeshift libraries, rooms filled with books donated by um, people in the local community who would donate things to the um, whatever children's home you were at that time. So each children's home I went to, I would be in the library. And my love of writing started from my love of reading but I couldn't just read anything I needed inspiration and I needed to find a life within a life if that makes any sense so I would read these books and fall in love with these stories and they saved me um Chris if you want the truth you know they really truly did I'd read all these stories and I'd read a lot of biographies as well I remember reading and I know she's probably not very inspirational to some people, but you've got to understand the connection first. Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean Davis. I remember picking up this um, memoir, not memoirs, um, autobiography of sorts. And there's all these beautiful, glamorous pictures. And I remember looking at this book thinking, wow, she's absolutely stunning. And look at her glamorous life. But then when I read further and realised that this beautiful you know, actress. That's, on, that's on the surface, right? Yeah, it was on the surface. But she was actually a child, troubled child. She'd had a terrible childhood and she was put thrust from foster home to foster home. And she, I found a connection there. And it was that connection. I was thinking, hang on a minute. I can do that too. I can do well. I can, I, it just doesn't matter that I've not had a great childhood because I've got my adult life to look forward to. So I just need to read as much as I can and learn and teach myself as much as I possibly can and carry that forward when I have my destiny in my own hands. And that is pretty much what I did. That's a fantastic uh, story and uh, that's a nice preamble because we haven't even started yet. I know. <laughs> <laughs>